The Law Herb Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print, and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org slash radiohour. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with Thea Leonarduzzi about her book, Dandelions. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's put out by Fitzcarraldo in the UK, and it's about her family, her grandmother in particular, the immigration of this Italian family to the UK, and the ways in which that whole family has sort of dealt with the entire the adjustment and how she has dealt with her own ancestry, her Italian heritage, going back to Italy, speaking Italian. It's really a delightful book. Yes, it is beautiful. And I think in the interview, we we spoke about your own experience as well being an immigrant to the U.S. We did. I talk about it every chance I get, don't I? Um, (laughs) We did. I mean, it did really remind me of that as a person who immigrated and who I I very much grew up watching my grandmother adjust to a new place, adjust to the way in which other people reacted to her and her foreignness. I dreaded bringing my lunch to school because I would have like eggplant and walnut paste. And then everybody else had like a normal sandwich. And I was so embarrassed. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Though, of course, looking back on it, I was probably the winner in that scenario. For sure. Um, Who knew Georgian food would be uh, trending in 2023? Yeah, really trending as it should be. It's really good. It's amazing. Um, Anyway, so I really related to it. And, And she has this beautiful metaphor about dandelions and the ways in which they can sort of stand in for a scattered, a dispersed household and be unwanted weeds that are also simultaneously to some people nutritious and parts delicious. of like a delicious, yeah, and like a parts of a, a cuisine. Anyway, so it's lovely. And Thea used to host the TLS podcast, so she's a pro and it was lovely chatting with her. That's true. Yes, I used to listen to her on the TLS podcast all the time. Like having a celebrity on our show, to me. Just three podcasting ladies talking about <laughs> <laughs> talking about literature. Yeah. What else can you want? And speaking of podcasts, literature, prizes, I just want to mm-hmm. acknowledge that this week, the LA Review of Books won a Whiting Prize. We did. It's a huge achievement, the Whiting Award. It's a really lovely recognition of all of the amazing, amazing work that so many people have put in to making the Los Angeles Review of Books what it is throughout these many years. And it's really, really nice to be an also amazing company. Yeah. Six other magazines received it all extremely deserving. And if we were in LA, I think we would all celebrate together, but I'm going to have to do it via Zoom. But a big congrats to the entire LA Review Books team and to us. Yes. Yeah. I really appreciated the judge's special citation for the LARB Radio Hour. Me too. <laughs> 
Just kidding. Just kidding. They didn't especially <laughs> cite us, but I, I knew that we were included and we were uh, instrumental. Yes, exactly. So I felt great about that. So congrats to us and LARB, and let's get to that interview with Thea. Let's do it. glad to be speaking with the writer Thea Linarduzzi today. For many years, she was an editor at the Times Literary Supplement in London, as well as a host of TLS's podcast and a frequent contributor there as well. Her writing has also appeared in our very own LA Review of Books, in LitHub, and elsewhere. She joins us to speak about her debut book, Dandelions, a winner of the Fitzcarraldo Editions Essay Prize. Weaving together memoir, history, and criticism, Dandelions explores the life of Linarduzzi's grandmother, Dursi, a totemic figure in her family who was born almost a century ago into Mussolini's Italy. Political and economic circumstances, as well as personal tragedy, forced Dursi to leave Italy for England, first as a child and later as an adult. Migration becomes one of the central realities of her life, and subsequently the life of her son, and then Linarduzzi herself. But even as the conditions of these moves between countries grow less critical, the difficulties of emigrating remain complicating and splintering a sense of identity and home, foregrounding difference, and calling belonging into question. Leonard Dutzi portrays the gravity of what for so many across the world is still the most dire of decisions, tracing the effects emigrating can have over multiple generations, while also finding inspiration in her family's resiliency and the stories they leave behind. Thank you so much, Thea, for being here. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. So Thea, I thought we could begin by you just telling us about the decision to write about your grandmother and her story and your own family, when that came to you, when the project, you know, started in earnest and um, how your family reacted when they knew that you were writing this. Uh, There are very various chapters in that. So, well, I mean, I think it wasn't ever really a decision in a way. It sort of, or if it was, it was a decision, it felt a bit like it was made for me just by the passage of time and event accumulating on event and conversation accumulating on on top of conversation. In a way, this might sound a bit cheesy, but it felt like my whole life had been, my whole life knowing my grandma had been me gathering and gathering and eventually it had to go somewhere. I think really it was her who decided that I was going to write a book. I just thought I was writing something private for myself, just an essay, you know, in the real, in the true sense of the word, it was a, I was trying something out. I was, it was an essay. And then from there, it just sort of snowballed, I suppose. That makes it sound more dangerous and, and exciting than it was, but it was a much more organic process of of just talking and spending time with my grandma. And yeah, I think slowly it was her who decided that there was a book here and that we were going to do something together. And for me, it was really just a a way of spending time with her and and trying to figure out how I felt about all of these things that she was telling me and had been telling me since I was a little girl. And as to how my family reacted, well, I think my nonna was thrilled <laughs> because as far as she's concerned, you know, she lived a life that everyone should know about, a life of great consequence. She loved, she lost, all of the things that make a great, you know, double-decker novel. And the rest of the family, I think, were just a bit puzzled as to why <laughs> why I was spending so much time indoors with my grandma in the beautiful 
Italian summers, <laughs> why we'd pulled the blinds down on the rest of the family and chased everyone outside so that we could just drink coffee and talk for hours and hours and hours. And I think they thought it was a maybe a passion project. And in a way, of course, it was. It absolutely was and, and is. I don't think they ever thought that anyone else would ever want to read it. It seems like your grandmother had actually been writing her story in some form over many years, actually writing down, you know, a big chunk, 57 pages or so at one point, and then kind of writing it by refining the stories that she told and telling them over and over again. Totally. She, well, that's sort of, I suppose, what I mean by it was her who made the decision. And I didn't know when I first decided to start kind of archiving our conversations. I didn't know that she'd kept a a diary of sorts. And it wasn't a, a diary kept, you know, in real time, writing in every night or every week. It was a diary of reflection. It was a diary that she wrote when she was already getting on in her years, when she decided that she was going to cast her memory back and and write almost in a stream of consciousness. And it actually is a stream of consciousness. Her punctuation is non-existent almost. And I didn't know that she had done this because again, that was, she'd probably done that about 20 years before I even came onto the scene. And then once I had decided, or once it was decided that there was a book that I was working on and that these conversations were going to go somewhere, she then got up and kind of took herself over to this cupboard that she has in her kitchen. So what you need to know about my nonna's kitchen is that it's the main room of the house. It's the kitchenette kind of comes off to the side and then there's a sitting area and there's a television and a table and a stove and everything happens in that space. Every conversation of note, as I said, the television is there. She has cupboard upon cupboard of her finest glassware and packed to the rafters with paracetamol and stale biscuits and trinkets and little devotional cards that she's accumulated over many pilgrimages to Lords and the Vatican and wherever. And anyway, so she shuffled over to this cupboard above the television, which was, I think, on mute and running in the background for most of our conversations. And she pulled this battered old exercise book out of out of the mess that was in that cupboard. She'd be mortified that I was saying it was a mess, it, but, you know, it's good mess. It's the mess of a life. She pulled out this battered old exercise book and it had this illustration on the cover of these really stereotypical kind of 90s punks in this cartoon. They've got safety pins through their through their noses. And I think it says somewhere on it, like, true rebel or something like that. <laughs> and in this exercise book, she is, yeah, she's put down, she sort of just let it pour out of her. I think over almost maybe one or two nights, just let everything pour out of her from the beginning to, to where she was at that point, which as I think was in the mid nineties. And she gave it to me anyway. She gave me this book, she put it down on the table. And she basically said, in response to my questions, I think I just asked her about my granddad, something about my granddad that was a bit sensitive at that point. She put it down on the table in front of me, kind of pushed it towards me, put a packet of tissues next to it and said, here you go, read this, you'll find some things. And then she just left the room. It was very dramatic. <laughs> and I just looked at this, this book and thought, oh, okay, so there's a book within this book. Within my book is her book. So yeah, exactly as you said, it was her, she was doing it. I've basically been manipulated by my grandmother. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that as I was reading your book, because one of the things that you also discuss is her love of romance and romance novels. And so it doesn't surprise me that she would be very dramatic in the way that she would reveal certain parts of information or certain things about her life. 
But it it also strikes me that, you know, something that you're constantly managing in the book is an archive and fiction. And the sort of tension between the two and trying to figure out what's what, how do you treat one, how do you treat the other, how do you sort of compile them together. And I wonder how you thought about the difficulty there. I mean, part of this has to be fiction, right? Because part of it is also memory. And, you know, I think we have to go back to that at some point. But how much of this do you feel like is nonfiction? Do you think of it as nonfiction? How much of it do you think of it as fiction? How much of it is an archive that you're mining and a story that you're telling about somebody's life? Well, it's clearly all of those things, as you said. And I'm not sure you know, I know it's important that there are lines between truth and and untruth. But I think what I was hoping to achieve in the book was to blur those lines in a productive way. So there's this, this line that I think about quite a lot from Natalia Ginsberg. And she said about how when you're writing a book, and it's a novel, or it's biography, or it's historical fiction, whatever it may be, she sort of described it as if you're building a house. And you can close the door on autobiography, but autobiography will always find its way back in through the window. So what I was hoping to do was to construct a work in which that is kind of, it's open and I'm not making a secret of it. I'm not trying to hide anything and say that, you know, this is this genre and this is that genre and those two things don't mingle. And I think forms are all corruptible, I suppose, is what I'm saying. And there's no point in pretending that, that fact isn't also fiction and vice versa. I suppose I wanted to acknowledge that in every act of telling a story, whether you're a historian or my grandmother or me, everything is obviously being filtered through you and through your experience and what you want and need that story to be and what you need it to mean to you and what you need it to mean to other people. So every turn I was reflecting on that, on the process of of writing anything down, really, of telling any story. And story, in Italian, the word storia is history. So history is story. And obviously we have that same thing in English, his story, his story. But it was just about kind of like putting that out there and and saying that everything is creation, everything is subject to the teller's touch, if you like. It seems to me that that kind of emphasis in the book on stories and how we construct them and the need for them. And then times where you kind of push back against that and decide to maybe reference certain things in fragments or move through things or get to things that happen to your grandmother that don't fit into her master narrative of her life are opportunities for you to put that right at the fore. With your grandma, her life is It seems exceptional in many ways, but then it's also the story of anyone maybe who has immigrated and who also was growing up during the Second World War or coming to age during the Second World War. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about your grandmother's story, just laying out. Absolutely. But the one thing that I do want to emphasize is that, you know, she would say that her life was exceptional, but at no point in this book anywhere do I say that her life was exceptional because because it wasn't. Sort of the point of this book in a way is that nobody's life in this book, mine, hers, my dad's, any of the lives featured here, none of them are exceptional. They're all a small component of, you know, the great tapestry of the 20th and 21st century. 
we were not heroes or heroines. We just lived our lives. We woke up, we went to work, we looked for work. We had babies, we lost babies. We, we met, fell in love, fell out of love, all of that sort of stuff. So yes, it's, these are lives, but they're, they could be anybody's. And so one of the things that my publisher asked me when we were approaching publication was, would you like to send us some photos and we can include photos in this book? And I felt very strongly, no, absolutely not. Because I think as soon as you have a physical portrayal of a specific person, it shuts down all of those avenues for the reader to project their own family, their own grandma, their own selves into that book and onto those lives. And it messes with that not exceptional, exceptional kind of balance that I was wanting to achieve. I digressed a little bit there, but um, my nonna's life. Yes. So she was born in in Italy, in Maniago, in the northeast of Italy, near Venice, between Venice and the mountains in 1926, which is the year that it became illegal to oppose fascism in any way. So it was a year of great consequence. It was a year when you might say shit got real. (laughs) You know, it it had been real. It had been real for some time since 1922, at least. But by 1926, no one could pretend that things hadn't got very, very serious. Ten years later, there would be the racial laws against Jewish people in Italy, but things were already very much headed that way. And it was clear for anyone to see fascism was was in. So she was a piccola italiana, which is a little Italian, which is what all of the children were, like piccolo or piccola italiana, depending on whether you're a boy or a girl. And that meant that you basically belonged to Italy, you belonged to Mussolini, you were the future of the country, you were his little soldiers, really. So she had to wear a uniform of a pleated black skirt, and everyone was given these little identity cards And in them, they were actually beautifully designed. (laughs) They were these little booklets. The one that she kept and gave me is a kind of mandarin orange colour. And it has this striking photo of Mussolini throwing his head back in laughter, looking, you know, every inch the benevolent avuncular figure. When you open it up, it gives the details of, of the person, you know, their age, their height, who they belong to, as in who their father was or who the man of the house was. And for my nonna in... The one that I have is from the, it was 1935. So by that point, her dad has died, her dad, Angelo. And what you already have here is a picture of a very Italian little girl, right? But what I haven't told you is that when she was nine years old, before this, before she had this little identity card in Mussolini's Italy, she had been taken by her father to Manchester in Northern England because he had been born there. Angelo, her father, was born in London, actually, in 1901, because his family, his parents before him, had gone to England in search of work. And it's always in search of work. It's always a response to Italy being dysfunctional, broken, unable to provide for for its people, that they go off to make a better life for themselves, as Italians did the world over. We're one of the most (laughs) migratory people that you can think of. We're everywhere. And so you have this, my nonna was basically split from a very young age. She was torn between these two countries, between Northern England specifically and Northern Italy specifically. And the whole of her life has then kind of lived out being kind of bounced between the two, rarely through her own choice. Mostly it was because 
the man in her life at the time, her father the first time, the second time it was her husband, after the Second World War, when Italy was truly on its knees, the factory that he worked in had stopped paying wages. And so the idea was, well, let's go and see if we can make something for ourselves in England. So they went to Manchester again. And the reason she's, one of the many reasons she's so important in the story of our family is because she embodies this thing that we continue to do in my family, that her son, my dad did after her, that I've done after him, which is to bounce back and forth between these two countries and not quite belong in one or the other, or not feel that we belong in one or the other, and to kind of constantly try to, to figure out where it, where we should be, where it's best for us to be, what we can build for ourselves there. She was a seamstress. She was an incredibly skilled seamstress, and she worked in tens of different sweatshops, as they were at the time, in Manchester. She took immense pride in her work. She had two sons. One was my uncle Manlio in 1951, just before they left Italy for England. It was a perfect post-war child, and he was born in he was born in Maniago, and he was raised speaking only the dialect. And he, by some strange fluke, has ended up living well, he's stayed and lived in England and built his whole life in England and only really speaks English now and this very tight dialect. <laughs> so he's mortified that he doesn't speak Italian. Whereas my dad, my dad was born in England and he's called John, which is a very, very English name. And they gave him that name so that he would fit in and not be bullied because his brother Manlio, with a very strong Italian name, was horrifically bullied. I wanted to pause here for a second and talk about the language, the language as it relates to you bouncing back and forth between these two countries and your family as well. There's beautiful passages in the book about the different dialects that your family speaks, that your grandfather speaks different, different dialects to his wife, his kids, and then Italian to his grandchildren, to you. And one of the things that also really struck me that I was just curious about is you say that you feel to be a different person when you speak Italian. And I feel the same. I also immigrant from Georgia, speak Russian with my parents, feel very much a different person when I speak Russian. But I was curious, if we were doing this interview in Italian, what would it be like for you? What would you be like? I don't know. I think I would probably feel more uncomfortable, but that's a function of... So the book hasn't been published in, in Italy. And I'm not surprised by that because I think it's a book that's written with non-Italians in mind, it's sort of, a lot of it kind of explains aspects of Italy that Italians, I feel, would probably not need explaining to them. So that doesn't surprise me at all. And my publisher and other people are like, oh, I can't, and my family especially, they're like, I can't believe it's not been published in Italian. And I'm frankly relieved that it isn't because the idea of, of it being read in Italy and being available in shops in the small town where my grandma lives it just makes me feel uncomfortable for the same reason that I would feel uncomfortable doing this interview in Italian, because I have lived outside of Italy for so long. I have this horrible insecurity that Italians who live in Italy, as opposed to Italians like me, who are only half Italian, and even the way I do it, you know, I'm minimizing my Italianness and my right to talk about Italy, that they would say, well, you, what's your right? to talk about us and to talk about our history with fascism and to talk about how easily we've slipped back into certain old habits. And what, again, one of the things I never wanted to, to do in this book, and I hope I haven't, is to point fingers or accuse anyone of anything. Because my point throughout is that 
we are all just as vulnerable to to certain corrosions or whatever of you know errors of judgment or whatever you know on a historical scale you know i'm talking to you and you're in america so you guys you guys know that all too well but yeah i think i would feel uncomfortable because i feel like i would be told that it wasn't my story to tell somehow you're listening to the larb radio hour We've been speaking with Thea Lenarduzzi about her book, Dandelions. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Colin Dickey on the line with us today. Colin's new book is called Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy. And Colin is going to give us a book recommendation. Colin, what book are you going to recommend? You know, a book I love that came out a couple of years ago, but I return to regularly is this book by Kevin Young called Bunk, which is about hoaxes and sort of grifters and con man and sort of a history of of that through specifically through the lens of, of race in America. And I think that it's great because I feel like I knew a lot of these stories. He talks a lot about, you know, people like Stephen Glass, the the reporter who made up a bunch of fictitious stories for, was it The New Republic? Was that who he's writing for? And various other places. And, but he comes back and back again to the way in which a lot of these con men, a lot of these scams, a lot of these grifters are built around sort of problematic formulations of American race. And that's that's their success. It's when people are able to play into the these kind of sort of stereotypes about Native Americans, about Black people, about whomever, these grifters are able to get a lot of mileage out of that. And it's such a fascinating way of revisiting a topic that I think, you know, you read a lot about or hear a lot about in true crime podcasts or whatever about grifters and, and that kind of stuff. But Kevin Young's sort of approach to it was dazzling in its in its approach, and it really grabbed me. What a great recommendation. Colin, will you give us the title of the book again and the author? The author is Kevin Young, and the title is Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbugs, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post-Facts, and Fake News. Good title. Thank you, Colin. Thanks a lot. We've been speaking with Colin Dickey. His new book is called Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Thea Leonarduzzi, author of Dandelions. It's interesting because, you know, it's not like you let off Britain either in the book. Yeah. <laughs> no one gets out of it very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a, a few passages where you talk about their attitudes towards Italians, you know, when there was more and more immigrants coming into the UK and this kind of like lascivious Italian man who's going to corrupt the British and this picture of them is kind of like lazy and a strain on the system. And so, yes, there's a suspicion and kind of like wrongdoing seemingly coming from both sides. And I feel like in general, there's this way of foreignness having both positive connotations, maybe like more in your generation, especially like Italian people from Italy, more of your age than when your grandmother came to England, the association was negative. You know, now it's like people think that you're so lucky to have both sides. And perhaps in the past, it it wasn't the case. Well, absolutely. So it was 
when I was spinning out telling you about my my nonna story before, and I ended up talking about my uncle Manlio, which just happens when you start talking about one member of the family because of the interconnections, you'll soon find yourself talking about someone completely different. But it was precisely that, you know, he, for him, when he was being raised in post-war Manchester, it was not in any way a good thing for him to be Italian because the favourite game in the in the playground was let's play Second World War. Right, you're the baddie, and we're you know we the English we're the goodies. And so he was just being you know shot by their fake guns all the time and being you know they were playing in bombed out buildings. So the memory was very much alive. It was built to well what was remaining, what remained standing was around them. And so that's why when my dad was born, they decided to give him a very, a name that made him fit in. My nonna had wanted to call him Vanny, but Vanny sounded a bit like a van or something. So they decided, well, no, let's just call him John. The other thing that you have to think about is that not only were they Italians just after the Second World War, they were also Catholics. And actually, it wasn't great to be Catholic in England at that time either. They were, you know, lumped together with other immigrants, the Irish, who, you know, were a nuisance to everyone. And everything was, if you were Catholic, you were you were worthless, you were lazy. If you were Italian, if you were any other immigrant, basically, if you were of colour, if you were Jewish, you were all, you were all a nuisance. You were all kind of a drain on society. So they didn't really, in that sense, have a lot going for them. Of course, they were incredibly hardworking, which won't surprise anyone. When it comes to migrants, they've always been the groups that have worked harder than anyone else. Just massive generalization there, but it's very much founded in truth. And, you know, I can say that my family helped to rebuild the country that had been completely decimated by war. They literally made floors and built houses. (laughs) And my nonna made clothes that clothed the people (laughs) who made fun of her and and called her all sorts of horrible names. So, yeah. (laughs) I want to make sure that we have time to talk about memory and the role that plays in your book. There's a beautiful line, I think near the end, where you write something like, why can't you just be happy with the memory and move on? I think you're speaking, you're writing about the Italian language. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, about your relationship to memory, how you were hoping to harness it here in the book. And maybe just your your relationship to it. I suppose how you engage with it on a day-to-day basis or engage with it when it comes to your family. I'm trying to remember where that line that you quoted is from. And I think I possibly was speaking about my, I think I might have been talking about my, my nonna or my granddad. I think it's because really in my relationship with my nonna, there's a lot of kind of processing and thought that I have to do in relation to him that sort of stands for my relationship with memory as a whole anyway. And I think most people's relationship with memory as a whole in that you you have to come to some kind of accommodation between memory and reality in inverted commas, you know, in as much as there can be anything objective there. And with my nonna, I think that you're touching on there. I think it was maybe after I... So when I was little, I think I was probably about nine or 10, me and my grandma were looking through some photos. And this has been my whole life, not just when I was writing books. She will, when I go, she will just bring out photographs and she kind of releases them from brittle old elastic bands. Or she, they're in the between the pages of books or in old envelopes that are completely yellowed and tea stained and 
and whatever. And and she'll show me these photos and they kind of act as prompts really to conversation. And you can be looking through and, you know, there's photo after photo of face you don't recognize and you'll recognize a face. Then you'll find a lovely one of your grandfather and she'll tell you about, oh, yes, that was the day when we went to the lake and such and such a lovely thing happened. And then the next photo I'm presented with is my nonno with his friends, all of them smiling, like they're having the best day ever. It's sunny. You can tell it's hot. Got their sleeves rolled up. And on the just where their sleeve has rolled up to, they have swastika armbands. And I remember almost throwing this photo down and looking at my nonna, tears immediately coming to my eyes, you know, understanding or thinking that I understood how the weight of history, the weight of all of that, the judgment that was coming down from me and from the world on this man who was my nonna, who I had loved and who was dead now. We sort of moved on from that then when I was a child, but I remembered it. And so then for years and years, I would say a decade more, it troubled me and I didn't know what to do with it. This is kind of the example of memory kind of taunting you and kind of sticking like a thorn in you. And of course, in the process of the book, I had to address that because I'm talking about my family and memory and and history and all of the things that kind of existed in that photograph that came together in that photograph. And so, yeah, I think the thing that I wanted to be able to just be happy and, and move on from was the fact that I loved my nonno and he was a good man and, you know, and so on and so forth. But I needed to confront myself with the fact that he history isn't about goodies and baddies and people have different reasons for, well, not even decisions because sometimes decisions are made for you and all of these justifications you have to, you know, you have to work your way through. So I suppose, I've again, I've gone off on a slight tangent, but I suppose the book is about precisely that, confronting yourself with the memory and trying to make the memory fit or accept that it doesn't fit with the story that you want to tell and the way that you, what you want to build your own life on. I think that makes sense. And also, you know, fitting in with this idea of storytelling that you've kind of framed things around so much. It's like, yes, there's one version of the story of your grandfather. And then there's these other parts that don't quite fit in that version. So what do you do with that version? And Yeah, or they're, they're parts of the same version. So with my nonno and the swastika armbands, I knew that, but I immediately, my mind went straight as a child, straight to the worst thing that it could be, that he was a Nazi and, you know, he he was on the wrong side of history. And only decades later, through talking, through having the conversations that I'd been too ignorant and scared to have when I was younger, or simply just not ready for, not equipped for, I was able to add dimensions to that story that make me understand him and so any number of other people who have found themselves in you know, occupied territory, involved in things that they wouldn't want to have been involved in and collaborating with a little C, I suppose, in one way or another. So yeah, it's about, you know, the pieces that kind of come in from sidelines or from below or from above to kind of almost like midwife your memory into a new phase. Mm, I like that phrase. I thought we should probably talk about dandelions a little bit because that's um, so imp- important in the introduction. And it seems to me, it, you know, it's a frame that so much can pass through and that has so many, like we're saying, there's many different stories. There's so many different associations with the plant dandelion. And for your grandmother, right, it was food. And for people in England, they were weeds. And for her, she was going out to get something delicious. And for other people, she was doing something 
disgusting. So even just there, but what you find with that plant, I was really surprised of, of all these the myriad literary associations and also as this kind of almost like symbol of memory and also of migration. And also like funnily enough, you know, I was talking before about how how Britain post-war kind of lumped any migrant into the same category as, as a pest. The Irish, I've had so many people come up to me after doing readings or talks about the book to say that dandelions are, are consumed by their Irish grandmother and, and stuff. So again, they were united in that as well. But um, yeah, the dandelion, I mean, you can probably tell from the way I've been talking to you today, the dandelion's also kind of a quite, it's a plant that suits the way that I think. <laughs> you can ask me a question and I'll end up kind of going off on a, on a tangent. And and I like the way that the dandelion mirrors my own thought processes and that there are seeds here and there and sometimes they'll take and sometimes they won't and sometimes they'll grow really, really deep and strong and sometimes you won't be able to pull them all the way out. Sometimes they'll be really rich and nourishing, I hope. Sometimes they might be less so. But yeah, the dandelion, it's a plant that we have had on our table for my whole life and for my nonna's whole life. So, you know, we're talking centuries probably, really, because she would have had it from her family, passed down the generations since, you know, time began. It's free food. It's delicious and nourishing. You just, you take the leaves, you wilt them or you fry them or you boil them and you add a bit of oil if you want or butter or lemon or both, salt, pepper, splash of vinegar if you like. It's very versatile, but they're very bitter. And some people say that they are the the bitter herb referred to in the Passover seder. For others, they're just, there's a story about how basically dandelions are everywhere in the world. They grow almost everywhere from the North to the South Pole and extremes of climate. I mean, I suspect they'd be the only plant that survives global warming, <laughs> but they're probably not. They say that they they didn't used to exist in, in North America until the European pilgrims went over. And that's the story that they like to tell. That the European pilgrims, you know, put them in their pockets as they set off from, from Plymouth or from Italy or from wherever they were leaving. They put the seeds in their pockets in little pouches and took them away with them so that's because they knew that whenever they got to wherever they got, they would just scatter them and they would be a ready source of food and medicine because they're a strong diuretic and they have all sorts of medical claims and powers. Of course, that's just a story because there is also evidence of the dandelion predating European colonizers because natives, indigenous people in America, in the Americas, have records of using dandelions as well. So it's again, it's the way that we tell these stories, because we think that they somehow give us value, they validate us, they they show that we know something that someone else doesn't know. And that's what this, the dandelion is, you know, it's a way of kind of, in my family, it's a way of sort of, the story that that I open with is my grandma in Manchester, kind of ducking down to pick up these these weeds, these dandelions from a disused car park behind a, a shopping centre. And the locals, the Mancunians, the British people looking over and thinking like, what's wrong with her? What's she doing? Has she lost something? What's she, why is she scrabbling about in the dirt? You know, where the cats and the dogs do their business. And that story has become in my family, this story that we tell again and again and again, because it it sort of separates them from us. It separates the people who know that dandelions are this magical food of free food of, of, you know, we're clever, we're savvy, we can eat for free, but also that they are really, really good for you and they're delicious. 
And it separates us from the people who don't know that, who are missing a trick, who just haven't lived the lives that we live. So they're, they're kind of a, an important sorting device almost. Something that the book kind of made me rethink is this cultural difference, even like subtle pronunciation differences and how for some people that can be an invitation to basically ask someone like where they're from or who the, what their story is or these markers of difference. And I always easily will just, if I hear a cab driver, you know, with an accent or whatever, I want to get their story. I immediately point out like, oh, so where are you from? You know, because I can tell you're not American. And I like, you know, because I'm interested, but I also, I think reading your book, wondered if that was the right tack. Like if someone's difference should be an invitation to get their story or if it just should be, okay, I can see they have an accent. And I wondered if you had thoughts on that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I I do it myself, absolutely, because I'm a total magpie for stories. And also the telling of these stories, the sharing of these experiences are a way that we have traditionally bonded with people across divides. So it's obviously a beautiful and wonderful thing. But there is a, you know, I think I say in the book that curiosity is the cousin of suspicion. They're related impulses. So I think it's, it's about having that awareness that you clearly have that Someone doesn't always want to be singled out in that way. Someone doesn't always want to, especially if, I don't know, they've come from a war-torn country. They might not want to be reminded about what they've come from and where they've come from. I suppose, you know, it's like I do it myself as well, even with Italians. So I know they're not running from a war-torn country. But, you know, if I'm out and I, if I'm, I don't know, in a shop or in a restaurant and I have some exchange and I hear in their accent immediately that they're Italian, my instinct is to say like, oh, hi, I am Italian too. Where are you from? They don't always want, you know, people also want to just blend in sometimes. And I have it myself because I I don't like being called up on, or it's not that I don't like it, but it can you can tire of it. Sometimes you just want to be where you are and not have to constantly be reminded and kind of justify, I suppose, why you're in this place where, because it implies that maybe you should be somewhere else. But at the same time, I don't want to, make people think that they shouldn't have those conversations because they're they're essential and they're beautiful and they can be so wonderful and as I said like a bonding experience. There's a really beautiful inversion at the end where you talk about how you are haunting your family, the dead of your family even. And I just wondered if you if you could just talk about that a little bit. Why does it feel to you that you are a ghost haunting your own family? Well, for various reasons, but one of them is is really because we live in different worlds. We live in different times and different places. So there's always a disconnection. There's always a kind of a pane of glass or or something. So I think another metaphor that I use is that of a vampire, where there's a threshold and you have to be invited to cross it. But even if you do, you're still you're still one of you is undead. <laughs> one of you is dead and the other isn't, or you know, whatever. There's always a kind of a, a remove there. So the image of the ghost is just, I was very aware of of kind of hovering at the margins of these people's lives, not actually being able to touch them or to speak to them directly, even though I felt an absolute, really strong gravitational pull to them because they're my family. And when it's family, you just, you feel it, right? You feel like someone who lived hundreds of years before you even, just because they're related to you, because you share even the tiniest bit of DNA, their existence, the choices that they made, the lives they lived, say something about you. 
that's why, you know, the DNA, Ancestry.com, blah, 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 why all of those things are huge business. I think, I think online, online ancestry databases and all of that sort of stuff. I think in terms of the industry, it's only second, second only to pornography. It's absolutely enormous because we all feel so deeply like compelled to connect with with the dead because they're our dead, you know, and they we think they speak to us. We think we commune with them just because we're alive and they're and they're not. But yeah, the inversion is is just the truth, really. They don't need me. They don't need me to tell their story. I'm the one who needs to tell their story. I'm the one who's kind of raking over old ground, going and finding their their graves and tidying up, trying to tidy up their lives into kind of stories that that might mean something to me, let alone someone else maybe, might mean something to to other people, to people who read the book. The flip side of that, I wonder if you'd feel comfortable talking about this, but I know you have a child. I sometimes look at my daughter and I'm. it strikes me as a little weird that she has this very, very, very American half of her family is very much American and the other half of her family is very immigrant. And they're really different. <laughs> they're extremely different families. But she herself is, I mean, she's a child. She has no national identity <laughs> at this point, but she strikes me as American. I just think of her as a purely American child. And, you know, I, I think about, well, how how will she relate to that other side, to the immigrant side? The really, it's loud. The food is very different. The food is good. The food is good. It's much better. But yeah, yeah. Well, because it marks her out as different. It marks her out as different. She'll be like, why do I want to go and eat there, that weird food, when when all my friends have chicken nuggets or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. I wonder how she, how I will sort of guide her through navigating those two sides. And it feels tricky to me. And I wonder how you think about that with your child. How do you, how do you anticipate passing these stories on to her? How do you anticipate her relationship to Italy? And whether you think that's, it's sort of just genealogical, as you said, you maybe got it from your dad and he got it from his mother and and so on. One thing to say is that when I was writing the book, I didn't have a child and I didn't know that I was going to. We hadn't decided what was going to happen. So it was interesting to be writing it without knowing. And I think probably writing the book played a big part in the decision that we made to have a child. You know, it wasn't with some lofty sense of <laughs> needing to pass on the stories to the next generation, but it was probably something to do with just appreciating birth and life and marriage and death and all of those things that I'd seen all of my relatives do before me and what it meant to them and what it means to us. So yeah, it's really tricky. And I think the answer to the question of how I'm going to be about her links to Italy is probably quite neurotic. (laughs) I think I'm probably going to be quite an annoying mother. Within, you know, weeks of her birth, I'd already sorted out all of her identity papers. So she has dual identity. I felt very strongly that she needed to have dual nationality and dual passports because the world in which we live, you know, Brexit, Britain and all of those things, I wanted to make sure that she had the purchase that is objective, the truth that is is objective, which is your nationality papers, these, you know, official documents that say that you are this or you are that. I felt like if I could just, and you know, this isn't the kind of the postpartum haze of you get all of these weird ideas and things that probably aren't that important seem really important when you're, you know, and you're Googling 
everything under the sun like is it normal that my baby etc 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 it was in that phase there that I was like I absolutely must sort out all of her nationality stuff because I wanted her to have a kind of a foundation of objective reality of you are you are Italian and you are English you have purchase in both of these places both of these places are your home what you then decide to do later in your life is up to you I hope you'll try to keep them both going (laughs) I mean obviously I hope she'll make a lovely life for herself in Italy so that I can always visit her there if they let me out of my old age home but yeah, and then the language is a really interesting one because I'm obviously half and half, but my husband only speaks English. You know, we've been together for 20 years and he's not at all a sore point that he doesn't speak Italian. But so she hears the language that my daughter hears is, I would say, 80% English because when I speak to my husband, we're speaking in English. When he speaks to her, it's in English. When she's you know, out socially in England, she's being spoken to in English. So the only Italian she gets is from me or my family. And my family is a weird hodgepodge anyway. So quite often they'll speak to her in English. You know, my dad and my mum will and my sister. So quite often I'm saying, no, no, speak to her in Italian. Stop it, stop it. But I'm obsessively buying Italian books that she's far too young to read (laughs) so that I can read them to her. There's a fantastic retelling of Alessandro Mansoni's the betrothed written for children, which I've just taken delivery of. So it's far too advanced for <laughs> for her years, but maybe maybe in about seven years we'll get there. Well, she's lucky to have both, as are you. And uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Not at all. Thank you so much. That was Thea Lenarduzzi. Her new book is called Dandelions. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.